0: Hi, this is Salima, and it's time to put your money where your media is. Please support making contact with a donation at radioproject.org. Now, through September 31st, your donation will be doubled by Newsmatch. If you sign up for a new monthly donation, Newsmatch will double it for the whole year. Your $10 a month can instantly become $240 to help produce people-powered radio. Thank you. And here's the show.
1: Our system is in too many ways broken. The way we see
2: the world shapes the way that we treat it. This is Making Contact.
3: I'm Amy Gastelum, and on today's Making Contact mainly due to the climate change, heat
0: waves are becoming a new characteristic of European summers.
3: This week on Making Contact, we'll hear from our partner show, The Response Podcast. This episode originally aired in the fall of 2021, but sadly remains relevant. This summer, Europe experienced record-breaking heat again. And while wildfires dominate headlines, the long and severe heat waves are quietly killing vulnerable people and causing economic strain on communities that are already stretched thin.
4: Energy poverty is a specific form of poverty that is normally a result of inefficient homes, neoliberal energy markets, which put profit before people and planet, and also wider poverty indicators.
3: So today we revisit some local solutions to energy poverty that have emerged from groups across Southern Europe. Grassroots organizers in Catalonia use mutual aid and collective knowledge to help residents cope with rising utility costs. And activist groups push for those most affected by climate change to be prioritized as governments move forward with policies. To start us off, here's Eleni Miravili, the chief heat officer for Athens, Greece. She describes how local government is responding to heat waves and energy poverty.
1: So this summer was a really hard summer for Athens and for Greece, as it was in general for the Mediterranean. A lot of Mediterranean countries ended up having heat waves and reaching temperatures that were record-breaking for Europe.
2: Lenio Medivili works for the city of Athens as chief heat officer a position which is part of an initiative that started from the Atlantic Council's Arst Rockefeller Resilience Center.
1: It actually reached the hottest temperatures that Greece has ever reached. It was extraordinary. During several days, we had these post-apocalyptic images in the sky of these gray clouds with reddish kind of light coming through them. Photographs and, and images that we have seen from... California and from Sydney. I mean, we are now starting to share this imagery, which really feels like a post-apocalyptic movie. It really brings to the front kind of what we will be facing in the future much more often than we are now. And it's it's daunting.
2: But as devastating and headline-grabbing as they are, wildfires aren't the only disasters that are sparked by rising temperatures. Heat
1: waves and extreme heat is a silent killer. It kind of rolls in and nobody really knows what's going on and kind of stays there and then kind of it rolls out and then nobody really knows how many people have ended up in hospitals, how many people have died and what the effects really have been.
2: Exposure to extreme heat has both acute and long-lasting impacts on the human body. Heat stroke is perhaps the most obvious effect We also know that exposure is associated with heart disease, lung disease, psychological problems like brain fog or general confusion. Studies have even shown that it's associated with an increase in work-related accidents. About 104
0: million people in Europe cannot keep their homes sufficiently cool in summer.
2: Lydia Zhudzits is the senior expert at the Focus Association for Sustainable Development and a coordinator at EmpowerMed, a project working to tackle energy poverty in Mediterranean countries
0: mainly due to the climate change, heat waves are becoming a new characteristic of European summers. And for example, in 2003, more than 70,000 additional deaths occurred due to the heat waves. So summer energy poverty is present, and it also hits disproportionately the most vulnerable. People with lower incomes, people of colour, unemployed people, elderly, women or also people with health issues or homeless people are basically on the front line because they tend to live in the most inadequate homes or actually don't have homes at all. So they have the least access to cooling and being safe during these kinds of events. Namely, these areas are not only marked by poor buildings and poor insulation, but they also face challenges of errors, indebtedness and risks of disconnection.
2: There is actually no official EU-wide definition of energy poverty, but it's generally described by those in the field to occur when a household cannot achieve the minimum level of energy consumption required for satisfying basic needs and also for effective participation in society. So it's not just about being able to keep your home cool enough to stay healthy, but it's also about whether or not you're able to maintain a decent living environment. So having a house that's too hot to invite friends over would be one small, practical example. Households
0: that are affected by energy poverty may experience inadequate levels of essential energy services, like, for example, uh, thermal comfort. They might experience disproportionate energy expenses that are forcing them into decisions that are very difficult to make, like we call it the heat or eat dilemma, or they can have very precarious access to energy for example, depending on very unstable, sometimes even illegal supply of, for example, electricity. The problem of summer energy poverty is estimated to rise in the future, not only because of the climate change and the predictions, but also because vulnerability factors, especially in the Mediterranean areas of Europe, are becoming more and more expressed.
2: In addition to raising public awareness and formulating local, national, and EU policies designed to tackle the issue, EmpowerMed is also working on implementing practical solutions tailored to empower households affected by energy poverty.
0: We're proposing five different ways to tackle energy poverty among people. The first is so-called collective assembly. It's a, a format where about 20 to maybe 30 people affected by energy poverty gather in common spaces roughly every two weeks. During a conversation with each other, they help each other to transfer and exchange knowledge and skills about energy use, reading energy bills, implementing simple measures for energy savings, also. They're discussing, uh, for example, how to change energy provider from a more expensive one to a cheaper one. Sometimes people get together in collective assemblies to organize collective purchase of energy. Sometimes they're trying together to access building rehabilitation grants. So it's a wide array of activities that people try to do in support to each other in collective assemblies. But the most important characteristic of this activity is that actually people show each other that they're not alone, that they all have some part of knowledge of how to solve and tackle the problem, and that they can actually support each other and so on. Then the next way to tackle energy poverty are household visits. We do a short and very simple energy audit based on which we suggest a package of hints and tips about changing behavior in the household. But also we provide the household with a small package of free devices that can help them save some energy, also water, and so on.
2: So there's the assemblies and household visits. And EmpowerMed also hosts do-it-yourself workshops where participants can exchange tips and tricks on all sorts of things. From information on how to best shade your house with plants, how to use water and ice to cool a space with simple ventilation, or teaching folks how to read their smart meters.
0: Then the fourth way that we help the people is that we provide support in accessing small grants or loans for investments. For example, refurbishing the household or changing some of the energy-consuming devices. Then the last step or the last method that we're using are so-called health workshops. Here we work in two manners again. One way is that we work directly with people affected by energy poverty and a bit similar to collective assembly. We work with a group of people, but with the support of therapists who helps people open and tackle their mental problems related to energy poverty.
5: Monica Guiteras. I am a member of the Alliance Against Energy Poverty in Catalonia and I'm also part of Engineers Without Borders. The Alliance is a social movement formed basically by affected families suffering from energy poverty or energy precariousness that has been in the struggle for the energy rights the access to basic supplies since 2014.
2: Like EmpowerMed, the Alliance Against Energy Poverty in Catalonia works both on the policy and the grassroots levels. And they run a similar program of collective advisory assemblies every two weeks.
5: So what we are offering is an open space where each affected person can explain their own case with no judgment, with the aim of unblaming people and with the perspective of collective knowledge. So there's no people that are experts and then people that know nothing, but completely the opposite. We all know something because we have experienced diverse situations of precariousness and we have something to share. So those who have been disconnected know something about that procedure and how to be reconnected and those who have suffered from harassment phone harassment or door-to-door sellers that want to change the conditions of your contract those people would know how to face this kind of cases no so we are kind of sharing what each of one has experienced and we also try to share different uh, roles in the methodology so someone would be giving the welcoming someone would be explaining like the main pieces of information like basic information what are our rights what laws are protecting us then someone else would see how many new cases we have in the assembly and would give voice to one or the other, like in in order of appearance or in order of urgency. And then someone else would also accompany those cases that are more complex. So we try to work in a horizontal way. So it's also a democratizing process so that we can all have a say in the energy model that we live in.
2: The assemblies generally consist of around 25 or 30 people. And after switching to remote meetings during COVID, the Alliance has recently begun experimenting with a hybrid in-person and remote format, which they've noticed actually increases accessibility to folks who may not be able to conveniently travel to Barcelona for a meeting.
5: For us, mutual support is something that we saw it worked in other social movements. So lots of recognition for their proposal and their success. And of course, they learned from some others. No? And we also have a lot to learn from struggles in, in the global south And these more democratized and assembly proposals that have a collective responsibility where leadership can be shared and and can be changing. So no, maybe many people that come to our assembly, they don't know that mutual support is, is an anarchist proposal. They just know that it works. And you feel the other one is an equal. So you feel valued. We also try to And with the hierarchy of knowledges, like why is it more important to know how the electricity market works than to have the time to call Olga to ask her, how are you doing? Have you got your electricity yet? Like why is more important the conceptual knowledge than common sense or calls of how are you doing, which is very simple. But no one was doing this. I mean, no one. <laughs> For these people, like no one was helping them in this sense. Maybe they didn't need so much advice. Like the steps to follow are this, this, this. You need to, f- to fill in this forum, this forum and this form. But they needed like, how are you? This is something that not always social services can do because they can't do anything else. Like social workers are having so much trouble coping with all the work they have. So, yeah, autonomous organization is trying to answer to that.
2: Of course, that's not to say that legislation and policy work around energy poverty isn't needed as well. It definitely is. In fact, a lot of the on-the-ground support taking place in the assemblies informs the policy work being done by the Alliance Against Energy Poverty, which includes proposing legislation or programs to political parties and administrations, from city councils to the Catalan government and all the way up to the national level.
5: But in the meantime, and in the urgent perspective, we will be there. And then, of course, in the mid and long term, with measures and policies, but we need to have something to say and something to do today and and in the urgent term, no? So I think this is what is mutual support to us, like being there from the less complex perspective, like just knowing that it's kind of family but not because it's super hippie or oh let's make a party together no 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 like it's it's very concrete it's tangible because you go to the assembly and people is there for you so it counts it counts maybe sometimes just as much as a new piece of legislation
3: jumping in to remind you that you are listening to Making Contact and a piece from our partners at the podcast, The Response. If you'd like more information about our show, please visit us online at radioproject.org and leave us a comment. And now back to the show.
4: Hi, I'm Martha Myers. I am the energy poverty campaigner here at Friends of the Earth Europe, and we work for the most socially and environmentally resilient solutions to the climate crisis. I'm also the coordinator of the Right to Energy Coalition, which brings together social, environmental organizations, trade unions, and health organizations across Europe to ensure we tackle energy poverty and that we ensure a just energy transition for all so that low income groups are included in the European Green Deal.
2: Kind of like the Green New Deal here in the US, the European Green Deal is a set of policy initiatives by the EU with the overarching aim of making Europe climate neutral by 2050.
4: Energy poverty is a specific form of poverty that is normally a result of inefficient homes, neoliberal energy markets, which put profit before people and planet, and also wider poverty indicators. So we're looking at injustices, structural racism, more austerity measures, etc. So... It is not a personal burden of not being able to pay your energy bills. It is a response to us being given inefficient housing that has not been given adequate performance standards. It is a response to governments giving subsidies to fossil gas companies to install boilers rather than for them to subsidise heat pumps and district heating infrastructure. It is important to recognize that this is a structural inequality. This is often something which is misunderstood for those that are living in energy precarity. They think that in some way it is their fault. And we actually know that one in five Europeans struggle to keep their house cool during summer. So it's a huge problem across Europe, particularly in the southern regions, where there are inefficient housing um, and we know that heat waves are increasing at an exponential rate. This is the richest continent in the world where we should have adequate resources to deliver to those that live on the front lines of the climate crisis. And however, we continue to put the poorest and most vulnerable disproportionately at risk, as well as not giving them access to the clean and affordable energy that they deserve. So I think this is something that the Right to Energy Coalition really works for, is to ensure that we are holding governments accountable, holding the EU accountable to deliver to low-income groups who have been previously left behind or unheard in climate policy.
2: The Right to Energy Coalition has European partners at many different levels, from those with direct experiences of living in energy precarity to solidarity groups and community organizations Who take action to ensure that energy-poor households are protected and are able to access renovations and renewables at a local and municipal level. They also have partners who are working on changing national policy in EU member states.
4: Some of our main demands that we have here at the Right to Energy Coalition are to ensure that there are free grant-based renovations for low-income households across Europe and also that low-income households have access to renewable schemes. And one of the ways that this has to come forward so that we can remedy the climate crisis is by diverting subsidies from, for instance, fossil gas boilers, which are seen as the current answer to energy poverty, which is very short-sighted, towards more sustainable solutions to ensure that low-income households can have access to renewables, green district heating, etc. And this would also mean that Low income households would experience less heat energy poverty or summer energy poverty because they would be able to have greener air conditioning that was based on green electricity rather than on fossil fuel infrastructure.
1: Got involved in this role, the more I got worried about it and the more I learned about the challenges of the city in relation to heat, the more I felt that I was more and more dedicated to it.
2: Here's Athens chief heat officer Lenyo Mirivili again.
1: And from being part of all these international fora of cities talking about climate change and this and that, I also realized that there was very little work being done about heat in cities. Like people mostly, when they think of climate change, they think of sea level rising or you know, like extreme events like hurricanes or stuff like that. But, but very little attention has been given to the fact that we are talking about global warming and global warming means that the heat is rising And there's very little discussion about cities and how cities are even warmer than other parts because of the way that they're built and how cities are more and more attracting people to them and the populations are becoming more and more vulnerable to the weather conditions and specifically to heat.
2: In addition to implementing information campaigns and helping to create buddy systems where municipal workers and NGO members regularly check in on and provide a number of services to folks who may be particularly vulnerable to excessive heat. lenyo also has larger systemic visions, not just for Athens, but for cities all across Europe and even globally.
1: A big part of it is to make it more visible and make it more concrete and explain what the dangers that are related with it are to different parts of the population. Part of this, I think it will be uh, game changing if we manage to start naming heat waves and also categorizing them. So they're not this vague thing that doesn't really have a beginning and an end. It doesn't really have a specific kind of sense of what are we really dealing with which I think it will make it easier for the media to communicate them, but also for decision makers to set into motion specific responses based on what level of heat wave is being forecasted and what we will be dealing with. Now all this is very vague and ad hoc. And it's like, you know, different measures are being taken in different ways that are not at all kind of regulated and standardized. We have to transform our cities and we have to really aggressively take back public space from cars and really kind of focus on public transportation and on bringing nature and water in the cities. And actually, I think it has to be, I use the word aggressively, uh, very consciously, because I think we can't just kind of keep talking about, you know, creating parks or planting trees. I mean, all this is great, and I I don't want to say we shouldn't do this, but I think we should really vamp up the efforts and and really talk about creating forests in the cities, like long elongated forests in cities where we can take away space from cars and create other types of mobility that do not depend so much on, on the car. But generally kind of we have to rethink the surfaces of the cities. We have to use technologies, use different types of materials to cool the cities and and also bring water to the surfaces of the cities, which is very important, and use water together with green to lower temperatures.
4: As we have just seen with the release of the new IPCC report, we are really heading towards a climate crisis, and this is a lived experience for millions, if not billions, of people day to day. And it is the poorest who are on the front lines of the climate crisis, those who have already been marginalised by our current capitalist neoliberal system. And these are people of colour, elderly, those that have been already exploited and these are the people that have done the least to impact climate change, and they are often the ones that feel the brunt of this. And we're seeing this with heat waves across Europe at the moment, and also flash flooding, which has really drastically impacted Belgium, Germany, areas across the UK. So these heat waves are one example of the volatile nature of climate change and how this is going to just be escalating for years to come. So at the moment, we are heading towards a five to six degree warmer world. And really, we need to stay within 1.5 degrees to have a chance of any future for humanity and also for other species across the world. We should
5: start really understanding that it is collective responsibility. And that not everybody has contributed the same to climate change. We cannot demand the energy poor to consume less. We can't do that because maybe they are consuming too little. Maybe they are consuming under what they need. We have seen that very clearly in the Alliance Against Energy Poverty. Like People don't turn on the heat because they are too afraid to the bill that is coming the next month. So... For us, it's very important to understand that we cannot demand the same for people who have been under-consuming. So maybe some need to consume less for some to consume adequately. So for us, this is climate justice and this is what we are trying to explain
4: because there's inequalities. Adding low-income groups as a add-on to climate policy is not going to work. Like. These are groups that have been disproportionately excluded and exploited by the capitalist system for decades, if not centuries. So we must ensure that they are at the forefront of every single piece of climate legislation. We need to ensure that all green policy is socially just. We are going to have to spend billions, if not trillions of euros to mitigate the climate crisis. Either we do this through adaptation and mitigation to ensure that we have efficient housing, renewables for all green infrastructure and that this is heavily subsidised to ensure that all can have access to the energy transition or we have to respond to disaster after disaster. So I do hope that this is the time where we really shift away from neoliberal ideology in our political system towards really thinking about what is going to benefit people and planet in the long term
3: you've been listening to the podcast the response on making contact if you've enjoyed this episode please rate and review us on apple podcasts and then please share it with your friends and family on social media on Instagram, we're Making Contact Radio Project. On Twitter, we're Making Underscore Contact. To learn more about us and to access other episodes for free, you can visit us at radioproject.org. I've been your host this week, Amy Gastellum. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Until next week.